it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mixtape just around the corner Did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this on you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song and my song's gon' break through like a running back <laughs> This is so bad Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Joining me from afar today, my friend, my colleague, my co-host, my frenemy, Mr. Mark Daly. Mark, you are on Vancouver Island in the great city of Victoria, British Columbia. Am I correct? That's correct. Yeah, I've been here all week for work and just uh, packing up. By the time everybody starts listening to this, I'll be back home and you know have a long week of meetings and everything behind me and ready to relax over the weekend. And boy, I need the <laughs> I need the time to relax. It's been a pretty intense week, let me tell you. For those not familiar with the Pacific Northwest, of course, uh, our largest cities are all on the edge of the Pacific Ocean, but we're also blessed with some beautiful Gulf Islands, and all of these yeah. islands are connected with ferries, so you'll often see my social media where I'm on a ferry traversing back and forth, but daily for professional responsibilities is often in Victoria, which is on Vancouver Island, about a 90-minute ferry ride away. My parents are also there, so I'll c- Coincidentally, I was also on Vancouver Island, but I just got home a couple of minutes ago. But my friend, we've got some exciting stories to get through today. We also have the Spanish Grand Prix, which is like the dessert after a really, I don't know how to say it, but it's like the delicious, tasty, sweet dessert after a really, really tough Burt, Maine, which was Monaco, because of course, Monaco doesn't necessarily produce great racing. But my friend, where did you want to get started today? Yeah, well, first of all, let's give a quick shout out to uh, the Race Weekend magazine. You can head on over to their website, theraceweekend.com, and, and that is R-A-C-E-W-K-N-D.com and enter in our promo code ScuderiaPod at checkout and save 10% on a subscription. And then also go and check out RacingExclusives.com. Tease and the crew have um, provided us with a fantastic half-scale autographed Max Verstappen helmet to give away for the winner of our Fantasy League this year, and that comes with a certificate of authenticity so you know it's the real deal so go and check them out as well racingexclusives.com and also a shout out to jt the human the artist that inc- created that incredible opening music for the podcast so first of all let's uh, before we jump into the spanish grand prix and some of the news making the rounds this week um, i want you to uh, break this one down i'm not quite sure how to follow this one uh, 
But this is a, a stat that you got by Sad Walrus 86 on Reddit, and it's wet weather wins by driver and uh, wet weather races that they participated in and their win percentage. So there's some interesting names in there and probably some not all that uh, unsurprising. So why don't you take it away, Hammy? First of all, Daly, you are the smart one that when I <laughs> tee up a very technical, mathematically complex stat, I need you to unpack it, not just for the audience, but selfishly because I need to understand it. But yeah, a really cool little chart that was produced by, again, I love it, Sad Walrus 86 on Reddit. And basically what he's done is he's taken a view of the number of races that each driver has competed in that were wet and the number of wins that they actually accomplished from that bucket. So if you look at this race here, um, Michael Schumacher is arguably could possibly be the greatest driver of all time. I think there'd be some fierce debate amongst the team LH crowd, but according to the statistic, he competed in 44 race or 44 wet races and he won 16 of them, meaning that he had an almost 40% win rate when he was competing in a wet Grand Prix. Lewis is second. He's competed in 37 wet races to date. He's won 13 of them. So he has a 35% win rate in the rain. Ayrton Senna competed in 18 wet races, won 10 of them. So he has a 56% win rate in the rain. Jensen Button's at 18%, of course, far fewer races. Max Verstappen, this is probably the one that's most relevant given where we we are in the current state of the championship has competed in 16 wet Grand Prix. He has won five of them. So he's a 31% win rate. And then finally, the last one that might be relevant uh, for this conversation is Fernando Alonso in his career. And he's competed in more than 350 Grand Prix. Now he's competed in 42 wet Grand Prix of which he's won four. So his wet win rate is actually relatively low. But if you actually go and look at where he was racing, when many of those wet weather races happened, they were very early in his career, or they were during that period of Mercedes dominance. But yeah, just a couple of interesting statistics that Michael Schumacher, a 36, 37% win rate in the rain, and Lewis Hamilton, 35% win rate. And Ayrton Senna, again, a much smaller sample because tragically his career was cut short, but a 56% win rate in the rain. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I mean, even though Ayrton only uh, raced in 18 wet weather races, but I mean, Lewis, not all that far off, uh, Michael Schumacher. I mean, 37 for Lewis compared to 44 races for, for Schumacher. I mean, seven is quite doable if uh, if Lewis, you know, and the speculation is that he's going to re-sign with uh, Mercedes, so he should be around for a couple more years. So perhaps uh, he might get uh, closer to that. I mean, he's only three races off, uh, you know, tying that. And he's only like uh, Lewis's uh, win, or wet weather win percentage is 35.1 compared to 36.4 for Michael. So that's, that's pretty... Pretty good, but amazing for for Senna, fifty six and a half percent. That is uh, absolutely stunning. Daily, okay, I have trouble right. staying out of the ditch when it's raining and I'm driving to Walmart. <laughs> the fact that the fact that these guys could win Formula One Grand Prix in the wet is yeah. is absolutely absolutely remarkable. Now I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here because sure. I, I'm kind of excited to introduce this topic. But last week on the podcast, I finally announced that hey, my condo on Lance Stroll Island is up for sale. I'm done. I'm done. I love him. I wish him nothing but the best, but I am now convinced that what we are seeing day in and day out after six, seven years and a hundred plus Grand Prix is maybe about as much as we're going to see. And there was a really great chart that I pulled here off of formula one.com 
and it calls out the number of points scored as a percentage of total team points after round seven in Monaco. Uh, Verstappen has scored 58% of the uh, Red Bull points, which actually seems a little bit lower than maybe you would have guessed. Fernando yep. Alonso has scored 78%. Lewis Hamilton up on George Russell with 58 Carlos Sainz at 53, Aachen at 60, Norris at 71, Hulkenberg 75, Bottas 65. And then, of course, in the case of Williams and AlphaTauri, because they've scored so few points in total, they're largely irrelevant, but Sonoda scored 100 and Albon scored 100. But the reason that this is relevant is, one, I got a ton of feedback this week about those comments that I made about Lance Stroll. And a lot of them were people that were, hey, you know what? Kudos. You know what? Again, your opinions evolved and it's so great that you're not going to die on that hill. And surprisingly, a lot of the feedback was, no, no, no. He's an incredibly talented driver and he's going to be successful. And a couple of days ago, friend of the show, Randy, uh, one of my good personal friends, had sent me a link to a story on Crash.net. And there were some interesting quotes here from a former Formula One driver, Juan pa Pablo Montoya, and he was quoted as saying, and I quote, Lance has come a long way, and I think Fernando is going to make him a much better driver. I'm okay with what he did with a car as fast as he had. You can either sit in line and do nothing or try. If you sit in line and do nothing, you might be lucky to get a point or two. If you go for it and it works, you look really good, and if you don't, you missed a point or two. Lance has an opportunity. Lance is a lot better than people think he is, and I think he's very underrated. He's a really nice guy, which I wouldn't disagree with, and he's really quiet, but I I think he needs somebody on his corner to kick his ass and go, really, buddy, you lost two tenths here because of what? He needs to come out of his comfort zone in a way that's going to be a couple of shunts, and he did that in Monaco trying. I'd rather see him try. I'd rather see him try than just sit there because the next time he does it, if the guy knows he's coming, when you are passing somebody and they know you are coming, they'll give you the room because you know you're okay with hitting them. And he goes on and on. But finally, he concludes, I think Lance is more than good enough to hold his own in F1, according to David Crofty. So I thought this was interesting. And I responded to Randy because he sent me this story on, on WhatsApp, and I responded with a voice note. I'm just like, Dude, like, look, I'm not buying this, right? Like, this is a guy who came into Formula One in 2017. And he was partnered with Felipe Massa. And admittedly, and I think subsequent to that, Lance Stroll has come out and said, look, Felipe Massa wasn't exactly a great mentor to me in 2018. Of course, he was partnered with another pay driver, and that was a one-year deal. He had a couple of years being partnered with the far more tenured Sergio Perez. He was partnered with Sergio Perez when Sergio won a Grand Prix. And then he had two years partnered with... with of course, Sebastian Vettel. And I just, I don't buy now that after all those years and all of those experiences, and the, given the fact that he's in his mid twenties and he has seven years of formula one experience that all of a sudden now something's going to click. And Fernando of all people is going to be this great, great mentor to him. So I sent him this voice note and Randy had actually responded with a voice note, which we're going to play right now. If, if we're cool to get that teed up, but I oh, thought yeah, it was yeah. very insightful. So if we can play that, that would be great. And then maybe both you and I can respond to it. Sure. Here we go. You know, it, it's funny because, um, for Felipe Massa, Massa didn't care. Um, Massa thought of, stroll as the competition the boss's boy the all of that he was i i don't think that he probably said five words to encourage or or assist or anything he he was he viewed stroll as much the enemy as anybody else on the track i think i don't think there was any mentoring mentoring was the word i was looking for 
I don't think there was any mentoring there. Um, Perez, I, I, I don't, Perez doesn't strike me as anything resembling um, someone who would mentor either. Perez sees himself as a number one top driver. You know that it burns his ass that despite the fact that there was never any f-ing question when they were bringing him in, that it was all about Max and he was just the other guy in the other car and his job completely was as a support team every bit as much as the guy who puts on the left rear tire for max um vettel i think vettel was very much a mentor but not for stroll i don't think he gave i don't think he gave a rat's ass about stroll every time you saw him doing his his mentoring I, I, I say act, but not his mentoring role. Um, it wasn't Lance that was beside him. It was Mick. He, Mick was much more his teammate than Stroll. I, I, and, and again, could my perception be wrong? Sure. But that that's what I saw. I didn't see any, there was no, no none of the body language or chemistry even suggested that he was there supporting and mentoring um, Lance the way that Fernando is. And again, I'm, I, I like this Fernando Alonso much more than the, the guy that had the same name from years ago who who made Max look humble and giving. So I, I, I think from that standpoint, I think it might not matter. I think the expiry date may be just out. I think it may be just too late to pretend that, that Stroll is a fresh new face with skills. I think he does have skills. I think he's I think he's a way better driver than his record shows, but I don't think it's because of necessarily any hard luck. I think it's because he's a guy who's who's grown up with a lot of support and and I suspect that that he is, you know, I suspect Formula Three came easy to him, and like so many drivers, the skipping Formula Two, I think, was probably the death knell, because there's a big performance gap between those two cars. However, let's face it, there there are very successful drivers in those two support series that um, get in an F1 car and fall apart. So maybe that's what he was going to be. I don't know that it really changes anything. I don't necessarily think that. You know, they should be hanging in there for one more year. I think if he doesn't show some significant gains, like he was showing in those first few races, um, I think they still put a bullet in him. But Daily, your thoughts. I kind of teed this one up. My thoughts, hey, I don't know that he's... And I think sometimes you to be to be mentored, you need to want to be mentored. And I don't know that that's what he wants. And I don't know that he's receptive to it. And maybe he's just never had the mentor because like, like, and I saw you, I saw you nodding your head feverishly that, yeah, you know what? Sebastian Vettel was a phenomenal mentor the last two years to Mick Schumacher. To Mick Schumacher. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah your your yeah, thoughts 100%. on Randy's comments. 
Yeah, I think uh, like, like the, the the comments are on points. Like um, you know, it, it was pretty obvious that uh, that that Massa wasn't really in that that headspace. That um, you know, he, he probably thought that was uh, beneath him. And and Sergio, that that's kind of an interesting one, right? Because um, you know, has that reputation of being like the ultimate team kind of person. Because when things started going south with like Force India, like he was the one that kind of triggered that whole administration thing and kind of forced VJ Malia out and that opened the door for Lauren Stroll and his uh, consortium to come along and then, you know, take over that team and inject money into it. And a couple of years later, it, uh, you know, it morphed from Racing Point into Aston Martin. And, you know, this year, Aston Martin really looks like it's uh, getting together. But I, I don't know. I, I think he's a good teammate but like randy says he thinks that um you know he has you know an opinion that uh that he is like a top driver right and he might be like a good team guy but being a good team person or guy doesn't necessarily mean that that translates into being like a mentor or something like that that you know i I definitely think that um he goes there and does what red bull needs him to do for example but you know or where he is right now but when he was uh, with 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 racing points was uh, with with lance did that necessarily translate into to mentoring lance and the vettel one is kind of interesting too because that was the one that came up all the time that you know that um you know seb is such a great mentor and blah 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 and exactly like you said and randy said he was mentoring mick schumacher and you know how there's a discussion that they're really good friends and there's almost kind of like this you know father-son relationship he kind of looks out for him because where was it they had the coming together last year it was in miami right where where mick got a little bit uh you know punchy and and uh you know you know, you know shunted uh sebastian i think it was in turns one or two or whatever it was so yeah it's kind of funny that um you know he was kind of brought in to be that that, um, you know, that, um, I don't, do you want to call him a father figure at, uh, at Aston Martin? And it was sort of implied that, uh, that he was going to sort of teach Lance the, the, the tools of the trade and that he would, um, you know, assume the role after Sebastian left or retired because I mean, by the time he went to Aston Martin, it just kind of seemed it was like a question of when and not if he would retire. Right. And the whole sort of feeling was that he would kind of like help Lance step his game up uh, a couple of notches and and bring him up to a much higher level. And then, you know, he retires after the end of last year and now Fernando comes in and again, like, it's has it ever been like publicly said that Fernando is going to be that mentor or is it just kind of implied where you kind of have like this 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 age gap between like uh, j- just like uh, Sebastian Fernando older driver multiple world champion comes to um, a team like Aston Martin which is developing you have Lance which is he's too old to really be a prospect anymore right <laughs> he's you're, yeah. well, you're in your yeah. mid-20s yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not like your prospect you you should be there now right you you should be delivering on what everybody thought like uh, you know the, the all these skills and talents that you everybody thought you had and so I, I just uh, I, I don't maybe it was maybe it was said somewhere I just feel like it felt like it was more implied that uh, Fernando would be this uh, the, the, this mentor to Lance when maybe that isn't really the case. But yeah, I think those are some some great points. I don't really have anything else to to add to that other than I'm just wondering if uh, you're you know leaving Lance Troll Island, can I have your extra parking spot <laughs> at the condo building? Yes, you can. By yeah, the way, right. th- there have been no offers on the condo. Two beds, a thousand square feet. 
two bedrooms, a view of the ocean. It is beautiful. Um, I do have an interesting summary of career statistics here from Lance Stroll. So as an FYI, 128 starts into his Formula One career, three podiums, one pole position, 221 points. Of course, he's Canadian. But VUK13 on Reddit actually put this summary together a couple of weeks ago, and I thought it was really interesting. Uh, in 2017, which was Lance's rookie year, he went up against Felipe Massa. And if you remember, Felipe Massa had actually retired at the end of 2016, but came back because Valtteri Bottas departed to that opportunity at Mercedes. So in 2017, his rookie season, uh, Massa outqualified him 17 to two um, in head-to-head races where there were no DNFs. Massa um, out or outperformed Stroll eight to four. The points tally though, was actually just 43 to 40. A large per- or a large reason for that, of course, was Stroll picked up 15 points in his podium finish in Baku, a race that Massa could conceivably have won if not for a really unfortunate late DNF himself. Top 10 finishes, Massa 13, Stroll 7. In 2018, which was Stroll's last year, his last year with Williams, and that car was an absolute Pig, and that was also the year he was up against another pig driver in Sergei Sorotkin. Uh, Sorotkin actually outqualified him twelve to eight um, in head-to-head finishes with no DNF. Stroll just eked ahead nine seven points finishes, although points were spare sparingly acquired that year stroll did outperform him six to one but that's two years into his career now 2019 that was his first year with sergio perez so three years deep into his career perez out qualified stroll 17 to three so that was the year that he made the switch over to racing points um in head-to-head finishes without dns perez outperformed stroll 13 to three and he outscored stroll 52 to 21 in 2020 which was the last year that sergio and lance were together uh perez out qualified stroll 10 to 4 in head-to-head finishes they finished 4 to 4 so it was kind of a tie there Perez outscored him 125 to 75 and in top 10 finishes Perez had 13 stroll had 10 and in top 5 finishes Perez had 6 and stroll had 4 and then when you skip ahead to the Sebastian Vettel years you would assume now that 4 or 5 years deep into his career and with some more familiarity with that car and that factory and that powertrain that maybe it's a little bit closer but in Seb's first year with the Aston Martin team, he outqualified Stroll 14 to 8. Lance did have an edge in races that are uh, head-to-head races without a DNF, eight to six. Um, Vettel still outscored him 43 to three. And then in 2022, which was of course Sebastian Vettel's last year with Aston Martin, he outqualified Stroll again, 13 to seven. So no improvement for Stroll there. He outperformed him in head-to-head finishes, eight to seven, and he had double the points of Stroll. 37 to 18. Uh, so, and of course, again, this year, you know, he's, he's what, 0 and 5 versus Alonso in qualifying and a mountain, a mountain's worth of points behind him. So I keep looking for, I know he's talented, but I keep looking for reasons to be more hopeful than I am. And I'm just not sure if they're there. And then ultimately, like you and I talked about last weekend, ultimately, like at some point, this is going to continue or this is going to start challenging the integrity of Lawrence Stroll's project here, which is to create a world championship winning team. You just, you can't have two teammates whose performance, the Delta between the two of them is so huge. Well, yeah, exactly. When you go back to the, 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 the graphic that you put up there, I mean, the, the, 
imbalance between um, you know Lance and Fernando is that Fernando's brought home seventy eight percent of the team's points thus far in in the season after the first seven rounds. So I mean that's not really a great performance by Lance because I mean in theory they both have identical equipment. They should both have the same car, and if Fernando's able to put it on the podium, and uh, I think there's only one race so far that he hasn't been on the podium, right? I mean, Lance theoretically should be right up there with his with his teammate because look, Verstappen, fifty eight percent of the uh, the points scored. That makes sense. I mean, Sergio's doing a good uh, job as well, but Max, by virtue of leading the the, the world championship, Hamilton, fifty eight percent of the points scored for Mercedes. That makes uh, makes a lot of sense too. And Sainz, fifty three and forty seven for Leclerc. Pretty much an even split. Esteban Ocon, 60% compared to Gasly. Yeah, Gasly's had a bit of a tough start uh, at Alpine and, 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 and Ocon as well until last weekend. But yeah, it's just uh, when you see stats like that and compare it to other teams around them, I think that's really, really quite sobering. I mean, you would expect like the, the, the next one that's closest is Lando at McLaren have 71% of the points scored for the team so far, even though it's, you know, they only have about 14 points. But compare that to Oscar Piastri. I mean, he's only seven races into his Formula One career, so it's going to take a while uh, before he kind of gets uh, where he needs to be. But, you know, from Oscar, we've seen the, you know, we, we've seen some flashes of uh, good things. So who knows? But uh, certainly when just going back to Lance, he's uh, just... Just uh, obviously not uh, cutting at the moment, but it's a good one. Why don't we just ju- jump into a quick break? We'll come back on the flip side and we'll get into the rest of the news uh, for the week. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, welcome back to the show and moving along onto the or into the news stories for the week. Uh, first one comes from Lawrence Edmonton, the or Edmondson, pardon, pardon me, the F1 editor over at ESPN.com. And the story is entitled Regulation Changes to Rain and Red Bull Would Ruin F1. And that comes from none other than Mercedes team principal Toto Wolf. And uh, well, obviously, we don't need to go down the, the, the laundry list of uh, stats and wins and everything that uh, that Red Bull has accomplished in 
in seven races this season. But I think it's uh, very uh, interesting, and you know, especially to come from from Toto, whose team dominated Formula One from 2014 to uh, 2020. And then, of course, Lewis, um, you know, was in there with a shout to win the championship in 2021. We don't need to go down that road. We know how that story ends. But I mean, you know, the, it was the, the you know the gap between Mercedes and Red Bull even in that season, regardless if he won the championship or not, was a lot closer. I mean, before that, undoubtedly, and uh, you know, there's there's no real dispute to that. 2014 all the way up to 2020, Mercedes was in a class of their own. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I think it's very interesting that uh, you hear uh, Toto say something like that. I'll read the quote. So here it goes. Quote, if we start putting in a balance of performance, we will ruin this sport. This is a meritocracy. Best driver and the best car spending the same amount of money win the championship. And if you break the rules and uh, either you should heavily or you should be heavily penalized, but only then, uh, but not for doing a good job. When you win in Formula One, it is a meritocracy and they have done just a good job. The car is fast in all conditions. The driver is at the top of his game. Even today in Monaco, going off at times but not DNFing is a skill. You can see that he pushed, uh, so credit to them. We just need to do a better job. We need to catch up, find intelligent solutions. Hope that our learning slope, development slope is steeper than theirs and eventually fight for this again. It's a sport whether it is good for the show or not. Obviously, a strong fight between 10 drivers or at least two. It's much better for all of us, but it's not happening. That is why you just have to accept that and get uh, and work to get back there, end quote. So there you go. I think that's, uh, you know, very, you know, I think that's a very good comment from 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 Total Wolf. And he says right off the very top of the, that, um, you know, that, that little speech that he gives there that, you know, it's, uh, you know, penalize them for breaking the rules don't penalize them for doing a good job i mean nobody was saying that about um about mercedes during all that um, you know that run over that those seven seasons they were just so much better than everyone else and i don't think it's a fair thing to say for red bull because basically you know when you kind of like you know strip it down to the basic argument is that well you shouldn't do that for mercedes because we like them a lot better than Red Bull. <laughs> like I understand that the, the the personalities of both of these teams, you know, are quite different, and I can understand that from you know certain points of view that that Mercedes and their drivers are much more likable and, and marketable and presentable. Well, maybe not presentable, but definitely marketable uh, than than the, uh, the the Red Bull ones because you know Max can be pretty blunt. He can be kind of almost borderline rude at times. Uh, Christian Horner as uh, what did Total Wolf call him in Drive to Survive? Like a little Jack Terrier, what, what did a Jack Russell Terrier nipping at your heels? And, you know, that's just kind of Christian Horn. So I, I can understand why some people, you know, don't really like them for that, but that's not really the basis of uh, why you should uh, penalize them, uh, is because you don't like them and they're running away with the championship uh, this season after winning last year. I, I, I totally get it, but. Uh, it, it, it's interesting that that Toto would make those comments. Although I think he's just stating a fact. I think that you could just almost do a Control X and a Control V and remove Red Bull and just drop in any other team name in there, regardless who it is. If they're the ones doing Red Bull like things this year, not that he's necessarily coming to the defense of Red Bull, right, Mark? Yeah. I'm trying to think about the best way to draw a comparison or an equivalent to North American team sports because that's often the only thing I 
have the capability of doing. But Total's sentiment is nice, but it's it's also a bit deceiving because Formula One, if nothing else, is an incredibly political sport. And Daly, you watch club football and I watch a lot of basketball. And if there is a call that the players don't like, they are in the ears of the referee immediately and they're lobbying and they're lobbying and they're lobbying. And it's very similar in Formula One where if there is something happening on the track or a rule that team principals do not like or CEOs of Formula One teams do not like, they are in the air of Stefano Domenicali and they are in the ear of anybody that's willing to listen at the FIA and they will lobby and they will lobby and they will lobby and they will campaign until there are rules changes that are advantageous to them. And as much as this is a nice sentiment from Total Wolf, um, let's be very honest, the technical directives that were applied last year because of the porpoising issue and a lot of the floor changes that were introduced this year that have subsequently reintroduced dirty air to the sport were because of the lobbying that that he himself was was doing last year. So while I appreciate the I appreciate the sentiment that hey let them win because they've developed the best car and they have the best driver and they just have the overall the best package. Um, within the last twelve months, he's lobbied in a way that has significantly altered the rules around the floors in a way that actually benefited his team. Now it ultimately hasn't been a deterrent to Red Bull because their package is so good, but it just it reinforces the fact that. Team principals can say these kind of things, but it won't stop them from lobbying and campaigning. And they do that because it works daily. It works. They have the ear, like especially somebody like Total Wolf, they have the ear of Stefano de Macaulay and the leadership at the FIA. And, and oftentimes their campaigning and their lobbying and their complaining, both in public and behind closed doors, lead to changes that are beneficial to them. So again, nice sentiment, but again, if there's an opera and again, and I don't know about you, but if, if I'm a formula one team principal and I've got this entire operation and cars and drivers, and I can get an edge on the competition by pushing for a rule change that disproportionately benefits me, I'm going to do that. I, I don't know about you. Yeah. And that's one of the funny things because, um, you know, even going back a couple of years, remember that it, we're, we're not that far removed that the, the, the Formula One teams had direct access to the race director in real time to complain oh about God, something yes, like during example. the race, right? <laughs> Yeah, you know, and and it's just I find it kind of weird because you know one of my roles is in professional governance, and it's it's just weird. I mean, Formula One is there to, or sorry, the FI is there as the the the, the regulatory body, and you have the teams directly lobbying for and advocating for things that are beneficial to them right to the CEO. Well, well, I mean, uh, Domenicali is the CEO of Formula One. He's not the, at the FIA, but you know what I mean? They're, they're lobbying to the most influential people in the sport to, to try and get uh, things changed midstream of a season to their benefit. It just, uh, it seems so, so strange. It's just like, uh, I, and I mean, if you're, you're Toto and that avenue is open to you, like, why wouldn't you try and do something about it? Especially if things aren't going to your, you know, 
aren't going in your way during the season and you think, well, maybe if I, you know, I, I press hard enough, maybe we can find some sort of favorable outcome that will, will serve us better. But I mean, like you say, I mean, ultimately it kind of has this neutralizing effect on the, the new regulations and these cars, you know, have kind of been, you know, they're, they're, they're handcuffed and almost reverted back to the previous formula that we wanted to get away from for all the things that you just <laughs> so highlighted. True, so it true. just, it, it just, uh, I don't know. It just really, it's, it's, it's strange and it's frustrating and it's kind of maddening. And the thing is like all these things like that are, they're, they're just sort of baked into formula one. It just, uh, it, it doesn't seem right. I, I can understand like when it comes to the officials that are actually out there on the court, on the fields, on the ice for, for other sports or the umpire that's behind home plates, you know, they're the calling the things that are happening right there on the field of play. You know, you think that was a ball rather than a strike that, uh, you know, he should be, you know, you struck the batter out instead of, uh, you know, that being ball four and you're, you're, you're given the walk or is it, you know, missed PI call at a football game. Yeah, that that's fine. I mean, you know, this heat of the moments, you know, then, and I accept that, uh, that the athletes and the players that are, that are out there, you know, they're, they're going to voice their opinion. And I mean, the, the thing is too, that you have in so many points or sorry, points sports, you know, the, 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 the option, if you're a coach on the sideline to throw that uh, flag out there and get like a real time review and, and formula one, I mean, I understand formula one is different. Motorsport is different, but it seems that, you know, they're, they're not really, well, <laughs> the one thing is the avenue to complain to the race director, which I guess would be the closest thing to being like a referee at the racetrack. That avenue is gone. They can't appeal to that person. They can't uh, appeal to the stewards anymore, but it just seems strange that when it comes to like the, you know, the, the, the foundations, the, you know, the, you know, the, the rules that they have to you know, that they have to work within to design and build these cars that seems to be open to interpretation and they can, um, you know, complain about that and get that change in the middle of the season. It just seems it, it's, it's very formula one. It was, I just want to kind of finish this one up. Uh, you know, if you go through and, and listen to Toto's comments, just compare that, uh, against, uh, the comments from Christian Horner after the, the Monaco Grand Prix last season, it's, it, you know, their point of view, or at least Christian's is very much, uh, different. And he says, quote, there's so much jeopardy you saw on Sunday with the weather and there's so many factors that can go wrong and the competition is so strong that, you know, anything can happen. So we're just taking it one race at a time, end quote. So it's kind of interesting, right? Like, even though they've, I guess you could say that they've had things go their way this season, but you know, they, they just have the right person in the right car with the right engine at the right time. And it's just like all these good things are aligning. It's just like, that's, that's interesting that uh, he should say that the, that the competition is so strong. There's all these other things going on, so many things that could potentially go wrong. And maybe that, uh, you know, for Red Bull is the best way to approach it is just, you know, take it race by race by race and just not try and let, uh, you know, the season and the results get away from you because, you know, until you cross that magical line in the sand somewhere at that point in the season where mathematically nobody can catch up to your driver for the world uh, drivers championship, this, this thing could still be won by 19 other drivers. I mean, how realistic is that? Not very, 
mean, there there would have to be a lot of things that would need to go wrong to prevent Max from winning another world championship uh, this season. But it's uh, it, I just find it very interesting that that little quote there from from Christian Horner kind of gives like a, a really good insight uh, into what he's thinking. Okay, moving along, just uh, talking about uh, Mercedes a little bit more. This comes from Matt Q over at uh, Autosport.com. Article is entitled "Mercedes F1 Has Climbed from Awful in Monaco to Just Not Good." So <laughs> that's the thing. I, I love these uh, Total Wolf uh, uh, comments. Anyways, uh, when uh, you know talking to uh, Autosport.com, Toto had the following to say: "Quote: It's so difficult to assess because we were in the mix with Aston Martin and Ferrari. I would say on a po- positive note, maybe encouraging because we have never really been good here. We have been three tenths behind pole last year. Was six tenths. This car was awful last year, and this time around, the drivers said it's not good. So." there is a step in the uh, description but we really need to be uh, uh, careful we've got to go to barcelona collect more data it's a new baseline i don't expect it's clearing aston martin and ferrari there either end quote so anyways uh, interesting from from toto but i guess any progress at this point for mercedes is good progress the car's not getting worse i mean it's just not awful now it's just not good but it's 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 funny i think that uh, you know he really um, you know, brought up a good point saying that Monaco typically isn't a track that they've done well at. When, when was it? Like 2017, 2018? Remember they had a horrible, horrible weekend there and they basically went back to the factory. And of course, this is pre-cost cap and they threw everything including the kitchen sink at the car and they had like a week or two weeks or whatever whatever it was before they flew out to montreal for the canadian grand prix and then that's when lewis broke senna's record for the 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 the, the polls career poll positions and and all that and then it was it was no looking back from there and the the, the question really is it's not if but when they're going to figure it out, I mean, they they made a big bold step to get away from you know the design concept uh, that they've uh, been working with over the last uh, couple of years, the side podless uh, concept on the W13 and this year's W14, and this thing's going to be a bit of a patchwork kind of a Frankenstein kind of thing because they're trying to make modifications and and upgrades to a car that wasn't great to begin with so are we really going to see this quantum leap forward from where Mercedes has been over the last 18 months yeah I I, I don't think so I think that pretty much echoes like Toto's uh, feelings as well and especially if the car just isn't good to begin with you know, it's it's not going to magically get better overnight. I, I just find it really funny that they stuck with this philosophy so long, and the best time to walk away from that philosophy was after uh, Abu Dhabi last year. Put all the focus into that for for this year, even though that uh, that uh, 2023 car was still um, probably uh, you know it, well it, it wasn't probably it was well in development by the end of uh, you know November last year. But it's just uh, funny that it would have been easier to walk away from that concept in November 22 rather than April. 2023 you know six seven months down the road when you're already well and truly into the new season that that's what i find funny is that you know they, they really believed in this concept in, up until very very recently i i don't know what do you think Mark? it's it's almost like you're you're driving along in the winter on an icy road and you crash into the ditch and then the tow truck comes and pulls you out and you're like i'm not going to make that mistake again and then you immediately hit the throttle and slide into the ditch on the other side of the road that that's 
kind of what happened to to Mercedes here that last year was a write-off because the concept and the car and the aerodynamic formula was just so fundamentally broken. And to your point, rather than scrapping that after Abu Dhabi last year and coming back with a totally revised concept, they doubled down, man. And and I, I get that at Monaco, they introduced a new suspension that's great, and they introduced a new floor, great, and they introduced some new side pods. But the reality is, I think the things that are making this car really problematic to drive are the things that we probably can't see. And those aren't things that they're going to be able to fix during the campaign. And in a way, you and I, dude, you and I talked about this so much back in 2021 that we talked about, you know, some teams are going to get that formula just right and they are going to run away and win championships. And that that's Red Bull. And some of these teams are going to get it so wrong that it's going to take them years to recover. And I think that's Mercedes. And again, McLaren, and I think a lot of teams on the grid would kill to have the W14. Like if that was their baseline, they would love it. But Mercedes isn't sure, just sure. any team, right? They're one of the most well-funded teams. They've got some of the best infrastructure in the sport. They've got arguably the greatest driver in the sport that sitting a point or two out of second place in the championship isn't where they want to be. So again, it's nice that they brought some upgrades, but to your point, I don't see them winning races this year. And and I think really it's not going to be until next year where we can maybe be excited about a Mercedes again, because I don't think we're going to get excited about the W14 in the sense that, hey, it's going to be competing for races in, in championships. And it's just, it's remarkable that Mercedes has found themselves in this pit of despair uh, that's now going to extend for two straight championships. Yeah, you know, considering how good they were until not very long ago, it, uh, it it's a very, very strange place to be that you, you could expect that maybe Red Bull would have caught up to them at some point. Like we, we saw them converging for a while and then they were ahead of them in 2021. Well, I mean, 2021, that was still fairly even. It went back and forth between Max and Lewis all season long, but 22, I mean, that gap that were, you know, they, they kind of were crossing uh you know paths right i mean uh red bull were on the ascendancy and you know mercedes was coming down the other side and that gap has still remained rather large uh you, even now let me add okay, one more thought Mark, before we move oh, sorry, on to the story because as you're talking this kind of occurred to me that i think from 2014 to 2021 we gave mercedes an awful lot of credit for being able to develop these great formula one racing cars and this great this great power unit to to propel it to all those championships and those race wins but when we when we sit back and we think about the fact that they were winning those championships in a non-cost cap era, they may also have been a hugely inefficient team, that they may have been less efficient than all of their competitors, and they may have been spending twice as much money to get comparable results. And ultimately, because they effectively had an unlimited budget, they could spend their way out of any problem. But now that we're in a situation where it's an engineering challenge, but everyone's operating under the same budget. You have to start wondering about the talent of the people within that organization, the decision-making because, Hey, in the past, maybe they made a lot of bad decisions, but to your point, you know, you just go back to the factory, cut a couple of checks. And two months later, you have a fundamentally new chassis. That's not an option now. So all of a sudden, I think the talent and the decision-making of the engineers and the aerodynamicists and the senior managers and the directors in the factory, all of a sudden those decisions are much more important than they would have been in the past. Because if you make a bad decision, 
that's going to live with you for months or maybe years. And some of the decisions that that Mercedes made dating back to late 21 when they were building the 2022 Challenger are with them today. Um, and it maybe speaks to the fact that, hey, Mercedes was really good and they won a lot of championships, but maybe an awful lot of that was just derived from the fact that they could afford to make more mistakes than other teams because they could spend their way out of those holes and out of those mistakes. Yeah, that's that's actually a very very interesting point that you should uh, bring it up. Is just uh, because they had this uh, huge workforce, they had this unlimited budget uh, to work with, they could literally just throw money at uh, at a problem on the car until it disappeared, and it didn't matter, you know, how they did it. And 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 maybe that was the thing is that they were able to engineer their way out of problems, but who's to say that uh, they they did it in the most efficient and uh, you know the you know most logical and quickest way? I mean. I mean, you know, it might be, uh, you know, a completely uh, different story now. Maybe, maybe that's uh, part of the problems. The, the the process that they had in place were just uh, uh, not good enough, and now they're they're kind of struggling because they don't have the option to throw unlimited, uh, you know, bundles of cash at the car to to engineer out of a problem. They just can't uh, do that now, and, and and maybe just the way that they are is, uh, you know, is preventing them from getting out of that hole quicker than uh, than perhaps uh, they, they might uh, have done otherwise. All right, let's take a, another break. We'll come back on the flip side, talk about a couple more things before we talk about the Spanish Grand Prix this weekend. And we'll do that in just a moment. So please don't go away. We will be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, moving along to the next story. So Alfa Romeo is leaving Sauber at the end of uh, this uh, season uh, before they transition slowly into the Audi works team in 2026. And uh, that has opened the door to potentially, well, for Alfa Romeo, that is, to potentially partner with Haas as their 2024 title sponsor. So this is uh, really interesting. So I don't know if this is, um, you know, how much legs this story has, because if uh, you check the, the, the news today on Thursday, June 1st, that um, you know Haas isn't really confirming it you know they're they're kind of like backing away from this but I mean it just kind of makes sense that if Alfa Romeo is out there they still want to you know partner with the team on a sponsorship deal Haas would be that team just considering that Alfa Romeo falls under the umbrella of other brands and marks that uh, the, under the same parent company as Ferrari and you 
and that Haas is part of the Ferrari family by extension because they have a, a little corner at the factory in Maranello, <laughs> and there's there's people wearing Haas t-shirts and overalls and stuff in Maranello doing whatever it is that they do because they have this technical partnership with uh, Ferrari. So, I mean, just from there, there there's a lot of commonalities. Um I just kind of find it interesting that even after the last couple of years that that Alpha is still willing to throw money into Formula One in uh, in a capacity that is just purely a branding and marketing exercise. I mean, they're they're not putting any technical know-how into any of the teams there that they've, well, I mean, they've only been involved with Sauber. Uh, you know, Haas remains to be seen, but they're, they're, they're not throwing any human power behind it to design a better car or a gearbox or an engine or whatever the case may be. I, I've just kind of fascinated by the fact that uh, they, they might just want to stay in just because apparently they think that they're getting good exposure in the sport and it's a, a good marketing kind of thing to do. Mark, uh, what do you think? Yeah. And to be fair, the story hasn't been confirmed. And I think you and I have been refreshing the browser quite a bit this week in the hopes that it would be. And and it's Dieter Rankin, who's, who's generally, he's generally pretty on the point when it comes to stuff like this. But I, I think as we all know, Alfa Romeo has been partnered with the Sauber team for a couple of years. It's been purely a branding exercise for Alfa Romeo. They've had no technical involvement in the development of that car. And I think they were cool with that. And I think even last year, you know, there was some quotes coming out of the Alpha Alpha Romeo um, company stating, hey, look, you know what? There's different ways to be involved with Formula One that a manufacturer can be involved without having technical input into the car. Um, and of course, it made sense for them to be partnered with Sauber because Sauber is by an extension of Ferrari customer team. And of course, Alfa Romeo and Ferrari fall under the same corporate umbrella. This deal makes perfect sense. Of course, Sauber is going to become the Audi Works team. They're going to abandon their partnership, their technical partnership with Ferrari. That's long established. Haas, though, is a probably as a close to a Ferrari B team as you could have within the confines of the current regulations. To your point, they they have a corner office at Marinello that they're so close when it comes to that technical partnership. But Haas is also a team that is in desperate, endlessly in desperate need of funding. And that's how they ended up partnered so intimately with Eurocali. And of course, fortunately, that's over. And it's how they became partnered with Rich Energy. But I think this could be a real way for them to, to turn the corner. And, and I think the deal, as it's reported, is going to be worth $20 million per year. And I think for Haas, that's a not insignificant deal. And presumably, they would become Alfa Romeo Haas MoneyGram F1 team powered by powered by Ferrari. And I think in this case, it's, it's actually, to me, it makes sense that Alfa Romeo would pay to have their name on the car and not have technical input because ultimately their sister brand, Ferrari, is the one that's designing the gearbox and the suspension and the power unit anyways. And it would seem like a weird duplication of efforts if you had two different manufacturers within the same corporate structure kind of doing the same thing. Like it doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think this is a smart move and it keeps a kind of a vaunted uh, manufacturer on the grid in a like you said, largely a marketing capacity, but they're there nonetheless. But I think this will be huge for Haas and hopefully this does a lot to to propel them from a competitiveness perspective. The other consideration here, and this is a little bit less relevant, of course, is that after 25, Ferrari is going to lose 
Sauber as a customer team, um, which suggests, and we've obviously seen this in the further and tighter and tighter integration between Marinello and Haas and Haas and the Ferrari team, is that I, I think there, if it's possible, that integration might become even closer. And, and I think based on some things I've heard that there could be some financial arrangements to, to nurture the Haas team a little bit more in terms of its development. And it's also understood that Ferrari is very hungry to have more participation in the driver decision making there. And of course, I think if Alfa Romeo, which is part of the Ferrari corporate umbrella is coming aboard uh, as part of that deal, they may demand something like, hey, we want to have direct input into who's going to be driving your cars. But an interesting story nonetheless, and that could happen as soon as next year. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on it and see what uh, what happens. Okay, one more story here before we get into the uh, the race preview for this uh, weekend. And this is an article from Ian Parks over speedcafe.com uh, titled Rossi Hope's Damning Words Sparked Alpine Monaco Upturn. And this was um, wasn't about two weeks ago now we were talking about that uh, that Renault CEO, Laurent Rossi. Uh, well, he, he basically ranted about the, the, the poor start to the season that we'd seen from from Alpine. Uh, but this uh, past weekend, immediately after this, uh, this well, I wouldn't go as far as a tirade, but uh, you know, the statements uh, that, he had, that he had, which were, were he made, which were pretty scathing about what uh, Alpine had done through the first half dozen races of uh, the season, he had to say the following, quote, I'm happy for the team. I would hope... Um, and so he said, then asked about uh, if his comments in Miami had uh, been motivating he said quote i hope so it's a bit early to say that but it certainly had one effect which is to say that we're not going to be satisfied with this there's a couple of things that we need to improve the performance of the car as i said back t- uh, back then will take time it needs regular updates upgrades on the car and we will do it operational excellence they did it and i'm glad and that's uh, then the mindset they have also exhibited a very good mindset over the past two races and whether uh, my remarks worked or not they are now doing what was missing so i'm happy end quote so i mean he's being very very generous on the bit you know the fact that um gasly got a seventh alcon got a third i mean it's great i mean uh, both cars in the top 10 one of those cars on the podium immediately after what uh what uh you know what he said in the media but to me it just seems almost a little bit uh you know premature to say that all of a sudden now they're doing the things that i wanted them to do all along does that mean that you know they were culturally just way too relaxed going about their jobs in the factory and on the pit well maybe that was something i mean uh you know it's 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 only one race that's a very very small sample so we'll just have to keep on uh, alpine but uh, certainly like we talked about it at the time a couple weeks ago mark very very strange for someone like Laurent rossi and his position to come out and say things publicly like he did about uh, alpine at the time yeah agree or not definitely definitely and it's seemed very much of those criticisms although i i think i think probably intended for a wide swath of individuals i i think probably no one bore the brunt of those criticisms more than of course otmar but i think ultimately i i think the the result in in monaco while their best outcome their best weekend of the year um if you if you look at the timeline of when rossi had made those comments in 
in Miami, this team didn't fundamentally change the car because they just simply didn't have the time. And I don't think they made significant personnel changes in Enstone. And if they did, those people that were added were probably only in the process of being onboarded. That I, I think those comments may have a long-term impact in the way that they manage their business. Um, but ultimately, I think it's more coincidental than anything that they were able to score that P3 and that P seven finish here. Now, my my friend, I know we've got to get on to Spain, yep. but there was one more story that I forgot to put in the outline. Um, and I'd love to to comment on it real quick. But this is an article from Adam Cooper over at autosport.com. And the article is entitled F1 Urge to Rethink Horrendous Gearbox Costs. And this is a really interesting story because today gearboxes are considered, I believe, transferable components, which means that teams can either A, build the gearbox themselves, or B, they can buy gearbox components from another team and package them together so they fit within the construct of their car. Now, interestingly, Mike Crack from the Aston Martin team has some interesting thoughts on gearboxes and the future of gearbox construction in the world of Formula One. And the context here, of course, is very important that last week you and I talked about the fact that Starting in 2026, Aston Martin is going to become an official Honda works team, which means that Honda is going to supply them with power units exclusively. Honda, though, doesn't build gearboxes. Today, Aston mm -hmm. Martin doesn't build gearboxes. Today, Aston Martin buys their engines from Mercedes. Today, Aston Martin buys their gearboxes from Mercedes, meaning that in 2026, they've got to build a gearbox for the first time a bespoke gearbox from the ground up. So this is an entirely new muscle that the Silverstone squad is going to have to develop. And it's also an incredibly expensive muscle. So says Mike Crack, if you look at the gearbox these days and you compare it with other motorsports categories, the gearbox is not a performance differentiator anymore. Everybody has more or less the same performance from the gearbox, but the cost for gearboxes is horrendous, especially if you compare it to other categories. So in a cost cap world, it's a question that you have to ask if it makes sense that you go with such complicated technology if there's no difference in performance. Every team is just writing off eight to nine million dollar a year for gearboxes where there's no performance difference at all. And he continues, we have been in talks with the FIA about it, or we've been in talks with the FIA about whether it makes sense to go simpler, go more cost effective on gearboxes with simpler technology, and also maybe less units per year that you would need in an attempt to just make the whole sport more sustainable. So it's, it's interesting, right? That in the light of the fact that his team is now going to be responsible for developing and building a gearbox from the ground up, all of a sudden he's of the mind that, eh, Maybe, maybe that this could be a standard supply component. And of course, a standard supply component is the FIA going to a common supplier and saying, hey, you, you're going to build the gearbox based on these specifications and sell it to all the teams. And I think that Mike Crack, now that he's inherited the responsibility of building a gearbox, is saying, I don't know if we really want to do this. I don't know if we really need to do this. Maybe we should just have a standard supply component gearbox and everybody rocks the same gearbox because there isn't really that much of a performance difference between them. Now, it'll be really interesting to hear how Ferrari and Mercedes and Alpine react to this and Red Bull, of course, because they're all developing bespoke gearboxes for their power units. But I thought it was an interesting conversation nonetheless. And it, again, it's 
I think it's just really funny, man. Like, I think it's just really funny that, hey, we're going to have our own power unit. Uh-oh, we have to develop our own gearbox. Eh, maybe nobody should develop their gearbox. Maybe it should be a standard supply component. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, like a, a really good one to follow, but uh, or a good story to follow. But uh, they certainly, you know, that's going to be a tough task for them. You know, in their their quest to become a top team, a championship contending team, to come up with uh, their own bespoke gearbox, like you say, and, um, and and put it on the car and be successful. So we'll see. We'll we'll see if Mike Crack has the same um, the same influence as a Total Wolf does when it comes to lobbying for his team. And I'm being a little bit uh, facetious. Okay, let's move along and take a look at the Spanish Grand Prix. So that's coming up uh, this weekend, and then um, you know this is this would have been the third of a triple header, which didn't actually end up being a, a triple header. But one thing I like about the Circuit Barcelona Catalunya is that they've done a lot of work to basically restore this track to its orig- original configuration and taken out some of the little kinks and curves and chicanes here. So a lot of the things that I think kind of ruined the, the track or made it. Uh, you know, took away a lot of its uh, potential has uh, been removed. And uh, we saw that uh, last year with the uh, turns uh, 10 and 11, where they uh, restored it to its original configuration rather than little sort of short, jaggedy things going on. And then the chicane at uh, turn 13 and 14, that's been removed. Now you go through turn 13 all the way around to the pit entrance and then turn 14 back on the start finish. So that's um, you know really, really uh, cool to see that that's been restored. So going to be 60 Six uh, lap race circuit length is 4.65 kilometers race distance is 307.24 kilometers and well it's kind of hard to come up with a lap record for this one because you know this configuration we haven't raced on in well basically ever uh but last year the fastest lap was set by uh, perez it was 124.108 pole was set by charles leclerc and the, the ferrari his time was a 118.750 we had a podium of max verstappen sergio perez and george russell so just looking at things um, again, just quickly. So Pirelli is bringing the C1, C2, C3 compounds to the race this weekend. That is the hardest tire compounds in uh, their set or their range, I should say. And uh, here we go again. <laughs> Mark, do you want to uh, take it away uh, what we could see this uh, this weekend? Yeah, a couple of comments. And first of all, a huge shout out to listener of the show, Jen Swafford, who is there in Spain at the track. She's been sending us some really exciting updates and photos over the course of the last couple of days. So wish you nothing but the best. And I hope this adventure and this journey is everything that you expected it to be. Uh, a couple of things that we should watch out for is is that the teams were going to be or will be testing the new construction tire that will be introduced formally at Silverstone in the early parts of this weekend. So uh, teams are getting the first opportunity. Now, those wheels or the, sorry, those tires will have the same compound that they've been running all year, but the construction will be a little bit more durable, um, given the fact that I think the FIA and Formula One had come to the realization that the the stresses being placed on these tires are, are greater than they'd anticipated that they would be um, based on the progression of the teams during this regulatory era. So something to look out for. Um, A couple of other things that I think is interesting about this track is it typically gets a lot of criticism from from viewers and pundits and analysts. But personally, I 
I really don't object to this track. And I, I think it's a nice addition. Um, it has two DRS zones. Of course, the first DRS zone being a fairly long one along the start finish straight leading into the first corner. Um, so it gives teams the opportunity to, to overtake heading into that first corner, not necessarily just outbreaking, but you've also got to be a little bit racy during T1. But I, I like this track. I have some good memories of it. It's been on the calendar um, principally since I guess the early Literally 90s. Literally forever. Yeah, and it was it was really a, a byproduct of some government funding um, in the in the early nineties. I, I think it's it's a well established track in in kind of the pantheon of motorsports. I think MotoGP's been there. I think almost every series you can imagine has been there. Historically, it's been used for Formula One winter testing as well. Although I think I think Formula One is probably going to lean into Bahrain a little bit more um, than this one moving forward, simply because as the season has started earlier and earlier, it was getting colder and colder to do your winter testing at at this track, but I like it, my friend. And I know you've been there personally, but do you think a lot of the criticism of this track is warranted in the, tr the criticism of course, is the same thing that we hear about a lot of tracks. There isn't enough overtaking. It becomes a parade. It's not particularly exciting, but to me, despite some of the, the flaws, I think the race organizers have worked hard to, like you said, restore this track to some of its earlier configurations, which should make for uh, I would say a more exciting race day, but do you think the criticisms are warranted? And furthermore, what are your personal experiences have having attended this race in person? Yeah, I, I think they were warranted, and I, I think that they've certainly tried to you know do something about it. That's why we've seen the the changes to certain parts of the track over the last couple of years. That uh, that they're trying to be uh, reactive. I wouldn't say proactive. I think it's taken them a long time to to get around to do something about it. Uh, but maybe seeing what we've seen at other tracks at uh, in different parts of the world, that they finally decided, okay, well, if they're willing to reprofile and redo, say, Alwyn. Park or Yas Marina or Zanfort or wherever it might be that that's maybe something that we should look at and and last year they they must have been um, encouraged enough I guess is the word to to use uh, encouraged uh, enough by the fact that they made those changes in ten, turns ten and eleven and restored it to its original configuration that that certainly worked and now they've straightened out the the, the next couple of corners as well so we will see whether or not that uh, actually plays out because it, you know that, that chicane especially before you went into uh, turn 14 for uh, at start finish there just completely ruined all the momentum that they had going around that back uh, portion of the track but the one thing you, you do get a fair bit of like up and down change in elevation on this track it's up, up at the top of a hill you know it, it's fairly wide and spread out but at the same time it's a, a fairly compact track as well and you know personally I, I quite like it I mean you get to really see them wind up all the way down start finish and you go into turns one two and three and we've seen some exciting racing and some overtaking into that uh, corner then you go around to turn uh, I guess that would be four and five where where we saw Rosberg and Hamilton have a coming together all those uh, years ago. And there, there's plenty of uh, places uh, that, that you can try and overtake on this track. And, you know, I, I just hope that the the changes that, they, that they've made and kind of, you know, kicking up all the dirty air um, <laughs> doesn't hinder them too much. But uh, it, it's a great track, um, you know, to, to go to as well for spectators. There's lots of really, really good uh, viewing points there. And uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, friend of the show, Jen Swafford, who's in... Uh, 
um, in, in Barcelona at the track right now, enjoying everything. Um, you know, certainly it's a, it's a great place. It's a great race in a great city. And I'm, I'm certainly uh, jealous uh, that uh, that I'm not there. You know, considering as I look at the clock now here as we're recording that we're we're six hours away from the first uh, session here, you know, first practice session. So it's going to get going uh, pretty Daily, quick. Uh, another question for you. We have two Spanish drivers on the grid this year and Carlos Sainz and Fernando Alonso. This is officially Fernando Alonso's home race. And I think fans have always been... Spanish fans are huge motorsports fans, MotoGP in particular, but they, they've also had some strong inclinations towards Formula One because they've had some successful drivers, uh, not least of which was uh, Fernando Alonso or has been Fernando Alonso. How much British racing green do you anticipate seeing in the crowd this year? Like, I, I can't, I guess the last time that Fernando would have gone home to race in Spain in a car as good as this would probably have been 2013, 2014 with Ferrari when, when they were still pretty competitive. Like I can't, I can't even imagine how sensational the crowd is going to be and how strong that reception is going to be for Fernando Alonso this year. It's, it's, it's going to be huge. I mean, uh, compared to, say, uh, Carlos Sainz, who really hasn't quite captured the, yeah, the Spanish uh, you know, fans' you know, imagination like Fernando has. And the fact that Fernando's got such a good car and he's had an outstanding start to the season, they, they've always really had his back and they, they've always been out there to support him even when he's had terrible cars now he has a very good car and i i expect mark like you you just hinted at i think we're going to see a lot of brg in the stands around barcelona all weekend long i i think he's going to get a rock stars reception if he has like a really really good race i mean the place is just going to explode i mean if he can keep up uh, with this um you know this trend of his uh of, uh, of finishing well and finishing on the podiums i think it's going to be uh, a massive massive uh you know weekend for fernando and for his fans i think it's going to be fun to watch if he can uh, keep if he can keep it up what do you so i i think earlier this week the weather forecast had suggested it could be wet for qualifying and there was a strong possibility that we could see race or see race we're definitely going to see a race on sunday but that there could be rain on sunday in time for that race i'm, I'm looking it up right now to see if that's cleared at all it looks like it is good a small chance of showers, but not significantly. And I think that's probably going to dissipate as we get a little bit closer. Uh, your predictions at this point, I, I, I think I know where I think I know where you're going to go with this. But do you anticipate any surprises if the track stays dry this weekend? Not really. I I, th I think we're going to see um, once again. I think we're going to see uh, you know Red Bull are, are going to be the team to beat, and I, I think that Fernando is still going to be a step or two ahead of uh, Hamilton and George in the two Mercedes cars. Uh, you know, Ferrari is just a, too much of an unknown at the at the at the moment. I think like we've seen over the first seven races, it'll probably be um, you know, Red Bull just a uh, you know that much further ahead of everyone else, Alonso behind, and um, you know Ferrari and Mercedes kind of mixing it up in the. Uh, you know, for the the, the 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 best of the rest, which seems kind of strange uh, to say. My only big question is, uh, you know, can, can Stroll get this one together for? Uh 
for um, Aston Martin, not to suggest that he might win, but just to um, you know be a better team player and uh, you know support his uh, his teammates and and the team themselves, bring home some points. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that um, the the fact that the Aston Martin is a little bit draggy, I don't think is going to hinder them too much. I mean, I know you got like the long start finish straight, but um, you know it handles well in the corners, and there's plenty of twisty components to it. Ferrari's top end speed might be a little bit uh, of a bonus. I mean, you know, the, the one thing that I could see that might be a little bit problematic is if that uh, Fernando gets stuck behind the Ferraris and the Ferrari just has that that top end speed down start finish and he just isn't able to overtake them. You know, he could get stuck behind them for, uh, you know, some some period of time. So that uh, remains to be seen. I mean, I wouldn't be con- as concerned about that if he was stuck behind one of the uh, Mercedes because they're not quite as quick as uh, the other ones. But yeah, that, that's what I expect. Red Bull. Um, Aston Martin, the Mercedes, and the Ferraris, and then uh, everyone yeah, else. Yeah, I don't think I've got a, a point that's particularly contrarian to what you've just shared. I, I think w- there's every reason to expect that Max is going to win and that he should win big on this track. And I think he's won every race except Australia by at least 20 seconds. And of course, the Australia was only kind of sub 20 seconds because you had that late restart, but ultimately he should win and the Red Bull should tear up this track. It'll be interesting to see how, how Sergio Perez responds after a horror shock weekend in, in Monaco. And, you know, you and I talked last weekend about the fact that the turnaround being so quick is pretty, probably pretty good from a psychological perspective. He can put that weekend behind him, go and have a really strong couple of practice sessions and, and get qualifying in the books. I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how, how, Lance Stroll responds as well. And I think, like you said earlier, Fernando Alonso scored 78% of all the points for Aston Martin this year. That's not acceptable. And Alonso has been sensational. And I would argue um, possibly the best driver on the grid this year. Um, And obviously Max is the best driver and he's going to win the championship. But I think in terms of performance relative to the capabilities of the car that he's being given. I think Fernando is just driving the wheels off of what is admittedly a really good Aston Martin car. Um, But I I think it's going to be a really important weekend for Lance Stroll. And I don't think Lance Stroll is going to want to go into the summer break with this kind of delta between him and his teammate, because I think it's going to introduce a lot of really uncomfortable questions for him in the media pen um, and increasingly for his dad as well. And I think the other thing I'm going to be looking for this weekend is probably going to be around Mercedes that Mercedes did introduce a host of upgrades and they kind of expected, Hey, a two tenth improvement versus where they were before, or that a two tenth of a second improvement would be a kind of the gold standard of what they maybe would expect to extract from that. Um, Monaco was probably not the best benchmark for what those upgrades are going to deliver. I think Spain is going to probably be a much, much better uh, showcase of what those upgrades uh, are really going to mean to that car. So I I think that's going to be something interesting to look for as well. And then finally, is Alpine going to be able to build on the momentum that they built so far this year that we know that Red Bull is going to run away with this championship, but could we have a much closer battle for two, three, four, five? And obviously I think at this point, Alpine competing for P4, I think it's probably too late for them to make a meaningful run, but it doesn't mean that they can't be in the mix with Ferrari and with Mercedes every race for the rest of the year. So some things to, some things to look forward to for, for sure. 
Absolutely. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap it up there. And before we go, just want to just uh, run down the uh, the top five in the driver's sta- standings. We have uh, Max Verstappen leading the way at 144 points, 105 for his teammate Sergio Perez in second. We have Fernando Alonso with 93 points in third. Hamilton for Mercedes with 69. And then George Russell, his Mercedes uh, teammate uh, with 50 points in fifth. Over on the constructor side, we have uh, Red Bull leading the way with 249 points. Aston Martin second with 120. Mercedes third with 119, Ferrari fourth with 90, and then Alpine rounding out the top five with 35 points. So um, thank you all for joining in and listening this week. If you want to get in touch, send us a tweet at ScooterF1 Pod on Twitter, and also send us an email at ScooterF1 Pod at gmail.com. Thank you very much uh, for listening. Enjoy the race. Mark and I will be back on Sunday night to, to wrap it up. Until then, enjoy the race, enjoy the weekend, and we'll talk to you again very, very soon. Bye for now.